turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be covering verses 12 to 17 this morning. I titled this morning's message, Love Not the World. In chapter 1, John starts this letter with a declaration of who Christ is. We read in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And look at verse 4. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Fellowship. Joy. It's two things that we desire to have as Christians. Fellowship this way begins when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Fellowship this way happens after you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and you have this fellowship and this unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. When you believe that Jesus Christ is your only hope of salvation, you have this relationship with the living God. You have this relationship with one another that people can't have unless they know Him. But you also have joy. You have joy unspeakable. You, you, God wants us to experience the fullness of His joy. But let me ask you a question. Are you experiencing this fellowship and this joy that you're supposed to have? Can you, can you just look at your own walk right now? And are you experiencing that in life? Joy. Fellowship. John makes another declaration in this first chapter, and I want you to personalize it here as I read it. What I mean by personalizing it, as I'm reading through these verses, I want you to look inward. I want you to look at yourself. I don't want you to be thinking about other people and how they fall into this, but how does this look to me? Look at verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. That contrast between light and darkness. I want you to make a mental note of that as we go forward this morning. But look what it says in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him 
and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and His Word is not in us. Verse 9 speaks about that confession of sin. Something that's important for somebody that doesn't know Christ because they need to admit they're a sinner to become a Christian. But for those of us that know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we also need to confess, we need to admit our sin before God. We need to do that on a regular basis. It's the means and the way in which you keep your vessel clean. It's how you maintain the fellowship at this level between you and God. When you keep this vessel clean and you keep that openness before God with confession of sin, God, this is me. I stand naked before you with whom I have to do. There's nothing that you don't see. And so why not just lay it out before God? These are my failures. These are my shortcomings. These are my temptations. These are the areas. God, would you strengthen me? Would you forgive me for my failures today? I want to be a vessel that's clean before you. I want that fellowship to have no brokenness in it. In chapter 2, the thought continues... But look how John starts it out. Remember, chapter breaks were put in later. And so the thought that we're flowing, that's flowing into the second chapter starts out with the words, my little children. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to the children of God. Twelve times throughout these five chapters, John uses this phrase, my little children. It's a term of endearment towards those that he's writing to. It's his care. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's such an incredible verse. It has so much meaning to you in enabling you to be able to continue on from day to day as a Christian with all of your failures and all of your shortcomings. You have an advocate. You have a lawyer. You have one that goes on your behalf before God the Father and makes intercession on your behalf. And it's Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation. He's the covering for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Can you imagine? 
He took not just your sin upon Him at the cross, but the sin of the whole world. Wow. Incredible love. The extent of His love to the whole world and all who would come and repent and confess their sin before Him. He's faithful and just to forgive. And He'll continue to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Incredible. Look at verse 3. Now by this we know that we know Him. If we keep His commandments. The test of obedience. We already went through that. It's it's John wanting to bring about a strong conviction in your heart of whether you are a believer or you're not. It's that test of obedience that we all had to take. By this, we know that we know Him. For the unbeliever, the Bible says that sin separates that person from God. Isaiah 59 verse 2. His ear is not deaf that He cannot hear you. His arm is not short that He cannot reach out to you. But it is your sin that separates you from your God. Sin separates man from God. For the Christian, though, sin breaks fellowship with God. You can be a Christian. You can be a child of God. You can be walking in compromise and walking in deliberate sin. And it will break that fellowship that you have with God. God will seem distant. He'll seem so far away. And if you've ever been in that place, it's a scary place to be in. Proverbs 28.13 says that he who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. If we want mercy, the Scriptures say His mercies are new every day. Then we need to come before the Lord with hearts, repentive hearts, hearts that don't want to see our fellowship broken. I want to keep it open between you and me, God. And this is me and you know me. And in doing so, God heaps His mercy and His grace upon you every single day. There's the chorus in Natalie Grant's song, the song Clean. And it says there is nothing too dirty that you can't make worthy. You wash me in mercy. I am clean. I love those words. There's nothing too dirty. There's no place that we have even been that God's mercy will not pour over His grace, will not flood over your sin if you come before God with a repentive heart. And you say, God, cleanse me, make me right, set me afresh, anew. The other problem with unconfessed sin and sin that's not repented of, it'll cause you to lose your joy. Lost joy. Have you ever been in that place? No joy. Lost joy. It's what sin will do until we get it right. And God will revive that joy within you. We have a God that wants to cleanse. 
But we have to be people that are willing to take it before Him. In Psalm 119, verse 9, it it says, How can a, a young man cleanse his way? It's asking a question. By taking heed according to your word, with my whole heart I sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Let God's word have his way in your life. When you hear it, when you read it, let him have his way. And you know what? That joy will be restored. You'll sense that cleansing effect of God's Word in your life on a daily basis. Every time you pick it up, we go out and we get dirtied by the world. We pick up the Word of God. We hear the Word of God taught. And the the cleansing effect of God's Word pouring over your life has an effect on you. It's why we can't do it one day a week. We have a midweek service here. We have women's Bible studies, men's Bible studies. It's for the purpose that we would gather together more often so that we would hear God's Word taught, that we would fellowship with other believers. I've come to learn my own self that I need more and more of this, not less and less. Don't let the busyness of this world rob you of what you need most. We have the power of God's Spirit that dwells and lives inside of you. His Holy Spirit. And He's, through that, given you every resource that you need for victory. There's no temptation that you have lived in or are living in that God will not give you the way of escape. He will not give you the victory. If you rely on the Holy Spirit and God working that power in you, you can say no to sin. Romans 15.13, Paul says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing in that You may abound in hope. And he says how that will happen. By the power of the Holy Spirit. How are you experiencing God's power in your life today? Or is it only a thing of the past? I once did. But what about today? Are you living and experiencing God's power in your life today? Are you abounding in hope? with all joy and peace in your heart. In 2 Corinthians 13.4, Paul says, though Jesus was crucified in weakness, yet He lives by the power of God. That's Jesus. For we also are weak in Him, but we shall live with Him by the power of God toward you. If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, how much more do we need God's Spirit in our life to be able to live victoriously, to have power in our life over sin? As children of God, we should have no desire for sin. We should even... I could say hate the sin that we see that transpires in our life, that we fall to. But it's inevitable that we will, isn't it? Is there any one of us that has reached a place of perfection? No. 
Inevitably, we will all sin. But we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In Psalm 97.10, we read, You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of His saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. That's what God does for you. You who love the Lord hate evil. Everything that's in this world that you would consider evil in the eyes of God, we should hate it. We shouldn't succumb to it. We shouldn't give in to it and just say, you know what, this is, you know, I'm just an imperfect, you know, but I should hate it. If we want to be more like Him, Jesus Christ hated evil. He hated the sin. He loved the sinner, but He hated the sin. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Paul says, Do not be deceived, Christians. Evil company corrupts good habits. Have you come to know that? The crowd you hang with, the people you associate with the most, are typically the ones that you start forming who you are around them. You spend time with Jesus Christ, you spend more time with Him, and you're going to become more like Him. You spend time with the ungodly more, and you spend time uh, buying into the things that they do, you inevitably will become more like them. We're to be separate from this world. We're not to exit out of this world. We're not to say, I don't associate with unbelievers. We need to be a witness and a light in this world. But I don't let their life consume me. I want to be like Christ, not like them. As Christians, the question is not, will we sin? But when we do sin, how do we get things right? That's the real question. How do you, and I'm speaking to you as an individual Christian, how do you get things right when you fail, when you fall, when you sin? How do you do that? If you're struggling with this issue of unconfessed sin this morning, and you're not sure how to get it right, I'm going to give you a little bit of a homework. You can write it down. Here it is. Psalm 32. Psalm 38. And Psalm 51. If you can't recall what those psalms are talking about, I would write them down. As a matter of fact, it would be good homework to periodically read those psalms because it will give you some instruction on how to get your heart right. And it's something that we need to do quite often. For me, it's every day. Getting our hearts right. Psalm 32. Psalm 38. Psalm 51. David, a man after God's own heart, knew how to get his heart right. That's what made him a man after God's own heart. Even with all of his failure, he knew how to get it right. He knew the God of mercy. He knew the God that would restore him and redeem him and bring him out of that pit. The question that we have to ask ourselves, do we know that? Do we know the path 
to fellowship, restored fellowship, and restored joy. He who says, verse 4, that I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. And by this we know that we are in Him. He who says, here it is again, He who says He abides in Him ought Himself also to walk just as Jesus walked. That's the test of obedience that we've already gone through. It's it's those assurance verses to us. That when you say to yourself, God, you know what? I do have this desire in my heart to be obedient to your word. I didn't have it before I was saved. I do have it now. Am I always perfectly living it out? No. But I have this desire in my heart to keep your word. That's a good indicator that you're a child of God. We took a second test last week, the test of love. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in Him and in you. And here's what I ask you to keep in your mind, because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. He who says that he is in the light, the person that says they're a Christian and that they're walking in the light but hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It's the test of love. It's what I told you was probably the primary test out of all the three tests in this letter, that test of love. It's one you can't fake because it's supernaturally imparted into your heart by God's Holy Spirit. And it's something that you only experience when you're truly a child of God. That agape, unconditional, sacrificial love that lives and dwells inside of us. He who loves his brother abides in the light. We come to our text this morning, verses 12 to 17. Love not the world or the things in the world. But before we get to verse 15, 17, I believe that what's taking place is that John felt the need to insert some words of encouragement to us, to those that were reading this letter. They needed to be encouraged. Just in the first 21 verses of this letter, John writes some pretty pointed statements, some real direct statements that when we read through those statements, it might scare us a little bit. It it might even discourage us a little bit. Verse 6 says that if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth, practice the truth. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. 
verse uh, chapter 2, verse 4. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Verse 6, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as Jesus walked. Verse 9, he who says that he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. Verse 11, but he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, those are very pointed statements. They get right to the point. John is cutting to the very core of what a Christian is and what a Christian is not. I think as those believers there in Asia Minor were reading this letter, some of them, and especially those that were new in their faith, might have been thinking, man, you know, I don't always love my brother in the way that I should. You know, and, and, I, and I have been struggling in my walk. And, 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 and I don't always keep God's commandments. And, I, and, I fit, you know, and, and so it could bring about a real insecurity into the hearts of those that would read those statements. For the person who is taking all of his statements to heart, unless you are very grounded in your faith and you know what you believe, it could be discouraging to you. And I believe that John right here is inserting these next verses really for a pause and an encouragement to us. You see, John's intention in this letter was never to discourage its readers. It it, it was to build you up in your faith. It's to build you up in your confidence that you know that you know that you know Him. Remember I shared with you the key verse to 1 John is chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe on the name of the Son of God. It's that key verse. It's an assurance that we should all have. I know that I know that I know. Let's read those verses. Verses 12 to 14. Another reason why John wrote. He says in verse 12, I write to you little children. Here it is again. Because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. Uh, Does that make you inside say, thank you, Lord, you've forgiven me of all of my trespasses and sins, past, present, and even my future sin? How many times does a brand new Christian need to know that and be reminded of that? Your sins have been forgiven. He continues to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Verse 13, I write to you fathers because you have known Him who is from the beginning. A little bit more maturity here in those words for the Father. You have known Him from the beginning. You've grown. You've matured. You've come to know who I am in a greater way. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. And those that are maybe in that place in their walk where they're just coming to know that spiritual warfare and that battle that rages. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. 
you have over, already overcome. John is going to tell us later on in this letter, who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Christ. That's an overcomer. I write to you little children again in verse 13, because you have known the Father. I write to you fathers because you have known Him who is from the beginning. He says it twice. He says it again in verse 14. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Words of encouragement. Words that will set us going forward again. Uh, Just trusting that, you know what, God has started this work. He's going to finish it. He holds me. So thankful. We need these words of encouragement, I believe, here. What we're going to see as we go through this letter of 1 John is that he's going to do this more than one time. Because of his words and how pointed and straightforward they are, there are times that John is going to back up and then encourage those that are reading. Because he's not trying to devastate our faith, he's trying to encourage us in it. God's Word in your heart is the greatest defense that you have against sin. The question is, how much of it do you know? Because if you don't know it, you can't apply it. If you don't know where the victory shout comes from, you you need to go to God's Word to find it. God's Word is our greatest defense. It's the sword. It's what will give you what you need in that spiritual battle, that spiritual warfare... Psalm 119.11 Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By giving heed to thy word. I need to spend time in it. I need to every single day, God, refresh me with it. Have your way in my heart. Teach me to know your ways. Last Sunday, John said, love God and also love others. Love God and love others. But he tells us this morning in verse 15, look at your Bibles, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. We're called to love God. To love one another, but not to love the things of this world. John uses these words, the world, six times in these three verses. 
he uses these same words, this world or the world, 22 times in these five chapters. The word world is the Greek word cosmos. In in the Greek, it, it had a meaning and its original meaning of an ornament. You know, an ornament that hangs on a tree. We get our English word cosmetic. A later use of the word was that the universe or the world, like a globe or like an ornament of God, when it speaks of the world in Scripture. But there are various meanings of this word cosmos. The context determines the meaning. The word can also have reference to the peoples that are encompassed the whole earth. For God so loved the world. He's not talking about for God so loved the globe or the, the, the world itself, but He loves the people in the world. It's the same Greek word cosmos. But in this case that we're reading about in 1 John here, and it's actually the most common way in which it's used, it's speaking of the world as being a world system. Or the things that are in this world, or the systems of this world. That's what John says, do not love the systems of this world or the things in the world as Christians. When we talk about the world and the systems that are in it, what we're saying is is that the world and its systems are quite often opposite of God, aren't they? They're opposite of His ways. But we live in this world. We live in these systems that are around us. The world and its systems are opposite to God. Also, the world's values, its pleasures, goals, ideals, and customs, uh, they're not God's. You notice that? Look at your world that you're in. How much in the world and in the systems that are out there are not of God? In 1 John 5.19, it tells us that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world, all of its systems, everything about lies under the sway of the wicked one. Who's the wicked one? Devil. We're told in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that Satan himself is the god of this world. That God, though, is what? With a little g. Not with a capital G. It's with a little g. He's the God of this world with a little g. But He's still powerful. The world and the material things of this world are part of that system that we live in, isn't it? 1 John 3.17 says that whoever has this world's goods and shuts up his bowels of compassion against those in need, how dwells the love of God in him? 
even the material things of this world, we can find ourselves falling trapped to. The world, though, can also speak of those who don't know Christ in Scripture. It can speak of those people that don't know the Lord. They're referred to as the world. It can also speak of those who belong to Christ. In John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Jesus, if you're a child of God, chose you out of the world. Remember Jesus' high prayer, not high prayer, but his prayer in John 17. Turn there. Turn in your Bibles to John 17, verse 9. John 17, verse 9. Follow with me. Jesus here is praying for his disciples. Jesus is also praying for you and I today, 2,000 years later. Listen how he prays. You're going to actually enter in a little bit into the very prayer life of our Lord. I pray for them. I do not pray for what? The world. Those that don't know. all those, But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. And all of mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Now I no longer, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I came and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are, as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Listen, church. He goes on to say, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. That's you and I that are believers. Just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by your truth. I do not pray for these disciples alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. They all, that they all may be one as you, Father, and me, and I and you, that they also may be one in us. That what? What does it say? That the world, those without Christ, may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me. 
And I have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. That's Jesus praying for you and I. He doesn't want us to, he doesn't want to pull us out of the world. He wants us in the world, but not of the world. He wants you to be here and to be a witness and a light for him. But he doesn't want you to to fall into the systems of the world. We're called as believers to love those that are in the world, those that don't know Christ. He's given us that task as believers to love them, to go after them. Because we have been pulled out of this world and they are still in the world and they need Christ. Isn't it incredible that God would use us to do that? He could do it so many other ways. But He's chosen to use us to bring that hope to this world. Matthew 6.24 tells us that no one can serve two masters. For either he hates the one or he loves the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. God and mammon, put what you want in there for the term mammon. You can't serve God and whatever else drives you in life. You can't have one God here and another God here. You can't serve the idol here. and and, it, It doesn't work. You'll be loyal to the one or the other. Some of us have heard this analogy about the two dogs. And which one of the these two dogs uh, is greater in your life? If you could picture yourself, these two dogs within you. It's been said that a, a man owned two dogs that were always fighting with each other. And one day a friend asked the man, which dog usually wins the fight? The man answered, the dog I feed the most. How do you win your fight? How are you winning this battle that you're in? If you feed your flesh by exposing yourself to sin and compromise, you're actually crossing the line and engaging in sin. You're surrounding yourself with sinful influences around you your peers, those people you're around, you're going to find yourself losing the fight. Don't ask the question, why am I always losing? What are you feeding? If you walk in the Spirit, if you live by the Spirit, if you keep in step with the Spirit, if you bathe yourself in the spirit of truth, God's Word. If you surround yourself with 
other Spirit-filled Christians, if you pray in the Spirit to your Heavenly Father, you're going to find that you're winning the good fight. What are you feeding? Which dog are you feeding? Which part? Do you understand that there's a battle that rages within you as a believer? It started, that battle started the day you gave your life to Christ. The first battle ended because you gave your life to Christ. You're no longer running from God. You're no longer battling against God. You gave your life to Christ. That battle ended. Now you're a child of God. And then a new battle started. The new battle is your flesh and your spirit. The world uses three traps to trap us. One of those traps is your flesh. Another trap is your eyes. And the third trap is your pride. Those three traps are nothing new. Those three traps go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The same traps that trapped Eve and Adam are the same traps that trap us. It's your flesh. It's your eyes. It's your pride. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, there it is, the world systems, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust of the flesh. What is the flesh? In a general sense, in a general term, it speaks of godless desires. It's a a life that is being dominated by its passions and its desires. The lust of the flesh. When we're in the, the flesh, we're, we're, we're often oblivious to God. You ever notice that? Have you ever noticed how you can check out from just being in tune with the Lord when you fall into sin and compromise and you, you give in to that? You become, <clears throat> in, a, in a sense, oblivious to God right there with you. Have you ever taken God into your sin and didn't even realize it? Didn't think much of it. But you literally brought Him into it. You became oblivious because you're blinded for the moment by your own flesh. And you become oblivious to God. And you become insensitive even to others that are around you. That's the danger of yielding to the lust of our flesh. Paul spoke of that in Romans chapter 7. You know, when he wanted to do right, he wanted to do good, but he finds himself giving in. Have you ever noticed that? You say with your mind you want to walk with God, you want to be like Jesus, you want to walk as He walked. But you see that within your members this other battle that goes on and quite often we don't find ourselves doing exactly what we say with our mind. Well, I'm going to start this devotion. 
I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to stop doing that. And then we get into the reality of it. We realize, man, it's not that easy. Paul writing to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you will not, you have to underline that word not, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You will not. But the, 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 the question is, how do I walk in the Spirit? The flesh lusts against the Spirit, Paul says. The Spirit against the flesh is that battle that I was talking about. These are contrary to one to another, so that you do not do the things you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And it goes through this list of all these ugly sins, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, Contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensations, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, rivalries, and the, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, here's a warning, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's... A warning. What's he mean to practice them? To habitually live in them without any remorse, without any care, without any concern, but to practice and to continue. It's a warning. But then I'm glad that this follows, but the fruit of the Spirit. That's what I want. That's what my mind wants. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. There's the victory shout. Walking in God's Spirit. Walking close to Jesus Christ. Feeding that dog within you that is, I need more of Jesus. I need more of Him. And the more that I have of Him, the more that that dog is being fed, the less that that other dog is going to prevail. The lust of the eyes. The next, the the second device that the world uses to trap you and I. It's the lust of the eyes. Psalm 119.37 says, Turn away my eyes from looking, and look what it says, at worthless things. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Worthless things. It's that fruit that Eve partook of. It's looking upon those things that are worthless things in this world. This world is you're getting hammered with worthless things that you can turn your eyes towards or you can turn them away. It's, it's that, it, 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 that choice that we make. It happens in a moment. The lust of the eyes is the sin of things that we shouldn't look at. The lust of the eyes is of things that we should not have. You see, King David made that mistake, didn't he? He saw and he took. 
and he reaped the whirlwind for it. But he's a man after God's own heart because he knew how to get his heart right with God. You see, the eyes have always been the gateway to feed your flesh. That's that's one of the the things that we live under, even as a believer. Your eyes are the gateway to feed your flesh. The temptation of things material here in this life, the things that we see with our eyes, the things that we want, the things that we covet, the things that we desire. The Tenth Commandment in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 5.21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The lust of the eyes. And lastly, the pride of life. We'll finish quickly. The world, it all boasts of what it has, doesn't it? All you have to do is turn the TV on. You know, in this world, it glamorizes wealth and material wealth and everything about it. But all of it, what does it scream? Pride. I've built this. This is my well. This is my things. These are the things I've acquired. It's the pride of life. It'll keep you from doing the will of God. Did you know that? That your pride will keep you from doing the will of God. The New American Standard translates that verse this way, the boastful pride of life. Boastful. You see, your pride, it tells you that you're all right. I'm good. Everything's fine. Me and God are good when you're not. Your pride says that you can handle it, but you can't. Your pride says, I have no need of God, but you do. You see, what, how, you see how pride will do that in our heart? And it can be such a subtle thing at times, but it has a grip on you. Pride is ugly. It's the root of all kinds of evil. It, 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 it just pride in itself is probably our greatest enemy. It's self-confidence instead of having complete confidence in God. Paul says that apart from you, I can do nothing. Do you ever say that? Having a complete dependence on God, what does it require of you? What does it require? Dying to self. Self is pride. I have to die to myself. If I, if I want to be dependent on the Lord, I have to die to self. You see, and pride is not even limited to the rich. I remember going into a barrio in the Philippines on a missions trip, and a woman sat in her little shack, leaned to, and the baby that she held in her arms, she was ashamed to come out because she didn't want 
those of us that were there to see her baby, that it was a rack of skin and bones because she would not bring that baby out for help. She was going to let it die in her arms because of her pride. She did not want to see as a mother that they, she would bring that infant out and it was about ready to die. We took that baby away to a hospital and I don't know to this day if it survived. Pride. Rich and poor. It comes out in all ways. But pride is worldly ambitions. It's getting ahead at others' expense. It's being self-sufficient. I can do it on my own. Even to the point of saying, I can have victory over the sin on my own. You can't unless you're dependent upon the Lord. It's so important that we understand that this pride that we contend with on a daily basis is your greatest enemy. And it'll, it, it'll, it'll have its way with you if you allow it to have its way. John closes in verse 17 this section. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it but he who does the will of God abides forever. That pride will keep you from being able to know God's will. It's very important that you stay completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. How do you know God's will? The biggest question probably on the top ten list of every question that a Christian would ask. How do I know God's will? I'll give you three things real quickly. There's three things that must always concur if you want to know God's will for your life. The first is the inward impulse. That's God in your heart impaling you forward. In other words, the Bible says that God is both in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. If you have any inkling to do anything, you sometimes say, is that God or is that not God? But that's not the only part of the test of knowing God's will. But we start with that inward impulse. The second is the Word of God. God in His book cooperating whatever He says in the heart. The will is there. Now God has confirmed something to me from His Word. He's spoken to me from His Word with what was already in my heart. The third is the trend or the flow of circumstances. This is a big one. God in circumstances which are always indicative of His will. In other words, God's not going to call me to go to Wales without giving me a desire to go there. God is not going to call me to go to Wales and really, and I'm not going to go unless He confirms it to me that He wants me to go. And then I also have to look for the trend, the flow of circumstance. For me to go, God has to provide the means and the ways in which I can go. And when all of those three things agree, when they come together, we could say, I believe that this is God's will. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.